Well, welcome. What a joy and a privilege. This, uh, this kind of fell together at the end, didn't it? Um, it wasn't really planned, and it happened, the slot opened up, and I was available and interested. And uh, so, here we are. And I am so excited to be able to talk with you. This is uh, something that I thought was interesting. Um, mornings, we, uh, we do a, a call-in, and we do a discussion, and we go through different books. This was a, um, a church in uh, Coquille, Oregon. Probably saying that wrong. So they had a, a trip down to Mexico, and they had cross-training. And here on the back, they paraphrased Hebrews 12:7, and they said, God is educating you. That's why you must never drop out. He's treating you as dear children. This trouble you're in isn't punishment, it's training. Hebrews 12, 7. It's good to keep that in mind, isn't it? Well, this topic to me is very compelling, and I'm so excited. Uh, a little about who I am, so you know my perspective and my bias. I finished at med school in 1993 at Loma Linda and orthopedic surgery in 1998. I now practice orthopedic surgery in Red Bluff, which is in Northern California, not too far from Redding. So that's who I am. And now I'm interested to know about you. And have any of you participated in the bridges or the pathways activities? Okay, here we have somebody here. Anybody else? I mean, this really is is something that is starting to foster a lot of these little types of grassroots activities. And I have to tell you that we didn't come up this, with this idea on our own. It was by participation with that. But if it's grassroots, then it's powerful. And I think that the Holy Spirit is pouring out this effort in many communities. There's been tremendous interest in it, and I see some that are well-established, some that are well on their way, and it's just, there's lights turning on all over. And in the, in the late 1800s, there was the temperance movement. Do you remember? I mean, there was really, it was coming on strong. And so the Holy Spirit, when time is starting to get into a transition period, then you see movements come along. And I think that the, we're seeing the beginning of the momentum that will build into a full medical ministry work. And I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited to be a part of it. Because I see my job as going away at some point. I don't know about you guys, but medicine is getting more and more difficult. And I feel like an Israelite that's stuck in Egypt. And then Moses comes along and... Uh, Pharaoh says, well, fine, you guys have a lot of energy. Why don't you get your own straw? And so here they come with a new thing, ICD-10. They come and put a computer on my desk. And they say, you have to use this computer. And, it, and now the computer is the priority, not the patient. And so I see these things as an indication that time is short. I also feel, when I deal with my computer that just like those Jews in Jerusalem hated the Romans and they blamed all the problems on the Romans, but the Romans were there because God wanted to teach them something and he wanted to manage them so that they wouldn't self-destruct. 
And so God has given me a computer so that I will learn patience and that I will be kind and that I will work with my colleagues. So, well, I have a lot to learn. Well, I'm not an expert, okay? For sure, I'm not an expert. And I'm not even a teacher. But I am a seeker and a learner. And I need to hear the things I say as much as I need to say them. If I am not giving you relevant information, please stop me from squandering your time and direct me to something that would be more helpful to you. Now, these are not my ideas. They're not my photos. And they're not my words. In fact, even the limited experience that I have is only the result of God's mercy in gathering the insight and motivation of others to make me a participant in this. If you hear something that challenges you or you feel like you need a reference, please stop me. And, uh, or you can stop me afterwards and I can do it my best to identify where I've come up with this um, particular idea, quote, or, or thought. Why have I been given the opportunity to take up this valuable time and this space? I want to relate to you a small grassroots medical ministry effort by a group of dentists and doctors called Adventist Compassion Care. This little effort has had a significant impact on the community of Red Bluff, and we want to encourage you and others to hear the call to start, or if you have already started, enthusiastically encourage you to begin moving forward with a medical missionary effort, because this will be your stream that will then coalesce with other streams, that will become a river, that becomes a mighty cataract, and this world that is waxing old like a garment is desperately thirsty. And you can meet that thirst with what you know and with what you've experienced. So this is pivotally important. And as a result of this discussion, I hope that you will dig deep into the Word, that you will wrestle prayerfully with these thoughts, and then begin to plan and to execute a medical ministry in your neighborhood, no matter how big it is or how small. If you already have a medical ministry in your backyard, network with us so that others can see the momentum and link arms with us and move forward. I would like to pray, if you, if you don't mind. I just uh, feel like this is real important. Lord God, we can do nothing of ourselves. And the words that we speak are not our own, but they are those of yours who sends us. And we seek to do your will and your will alone. And we know that we can draw no man, but that you, Father, can draw all men. We seek your glory, 
We seek that your glory reflecting and shining on us would send us. Father, glorify thy name. In Jesus' name, amen. What makes the difference between a professor and a confessor? See, one talks and one does. One hears and it goes through the conscience into the heart and it transforms the character. We have some hazards, especially Seventh-day Adventists. You see, truth, unexercised, is toxic. It's hazardous. It would be better to be ignorant of truth than to be exposed to truth and fail to implement truth. Does truth need a companion? It does, doesn't it? And, and who is truth's companion? You see, in Ephesians 4.15, it talks about speaking the truth in love. Benevolent action is essential as a companion of truth. You remember, there was a group of 120 that gathered together and put away their differences and united. They were given a gift of fire. What was unique about that fire? Anybody remember? It was cloven, wasn't it? Why two? Why was it split? One of those was truth, but the other was love. You see, the truth in love is paramount because truth can be toxic. It can wound, it can injure when it's inappropriately administered. Now, is Christian service an acquired taste? Is it spontaneous and natural? For some it may be. But for many, I think it is an acquired taste. And like any acquired taste, the first exposure may make you wonder what people find so interesting and exciting. But with investment, persistence, and vision, the rewards are otherworldly. I want to read this from Review and Herald, February 19, 1889. Every important truth received into the heart must find expression in the life. It is in proportion to the reception of the love of Christ that men desire to proclaim its power to others. And the very act of proclaiming it deepens and intensifies its value to their own souls. You want to take another look at that? There's a lot there, isn't there? So does this statement give us a metric, something to measure with, for our reception of Christ's love? It does, doesn't it? You see, the truth finds expression in the life proportionally to the reception of the love of Christ. 
So I get out my, my yardstick and I say, wow, how do I measure up? And I find myself horribly short. Well, this statement gives a practical tool for us to find what to do about it. Because the very act of proclaiming it then deepens and intensifies it for us. So participation in Christian service is essential, not only because we want to commu commu communicate this to others, but that we ourselves need to hear it. We need to participate in it, and it will deepen and intensify our experience. So what about Christian service? Well, if there's no service, then there's no Christian. And there can be no vision of who Christ is. Now, the corollary of that is also true. If there is no Christ, there is no Christian. And there certainly won't be Christian service. This is a thought that... Uh, is from a sermon called The Rediscovery of Jesus Christ for, from a, a fellow named Major Ian Thomas. And this is, is what he says. It has been said of these early disciples that they were incorrigibly happy, utterly unafraid, and nearly always in trouble. They had a good reason to be happy, and they had a good reason to be unafraid. They knew what they believed, and they believed what they knew. The problem, by and large, for the church today is that the church doesn't know enough of what it believes to make it happy, and it doesn't believe enough of what it knows to make it unafraid, and it neither believes or knows enough to get itself into trouble. <laughs> and this sounds like a Laodicean condition, doesn't it? So we have an opportunity, or we have a dilemma. And we can trust his omnipotence, or we can languish in impotence. Anybody familiar with this quote? This is from Review and Herald, March 13, 1888. The cause of our great deficiency in the Christian life, anybody know the answer to this? What is it? inactivity in the work of God. Ouch! But, but this then gives us another tool, doesn't it? Because now we, we can engage. Now, Christian service isn't the God, is it? The God that we know and understand leads us into service. So it really has to be wed, doesn't it? Very much so. You know where this, this quote comes from? It's a Review and Herald article, and you know what the title is? The title is The Necessity of Labor. And in it are discussed the essential practical aspects of delivering the third angel's message. And this statement in paragraph one caught my interest. It says, the third angel's message 
is not a system of truth simply to gratify and please the intellect. It means diligent and sacrificing labor to all who accept its holy teaching. So truth can't just sit here. Truth has to be expressed here. And it goes through here to get there, doesn't it? So it goes from your mind, through your heart, into your hand. We must arise and shine. Activity, activity, that's what the world needs to see because they don't have faith, do they? When they see you, then they can say, I can believe. So the dying world must hear and more importantly, see and most importantly, experience some good news. So how do we change acts of duty into acts of beauty? You see, when you're working for yourself, your boss is a tyrant. And when you work for the master, your boss is a loving father and savior. It doesn't mean you won't get tired. But in light of who he is, and what he has done, why would one be resentful? I want to read this quote from Review and Herald, February 14, 1899. You're probably familiar with it. When this experience is ours, we shall be lifted out of our poor, cheap selves that we have cherished so tenderly. We shall empty our hearts of the corroding power of selfishness, and shall be filled with praise and gratitude to God. Anybody want to be lifted out of their poor, cheap self? Ooh, this guy, desperately. Anyone want to be emptied of the corrosive power of selfishness? Amen. So what experience does this speak of? And how can we actively engage in this experience? Peter made this great summary in Acts 10.38. He's going to Cornelius and his friends after the vision of the sheet. And this is what he says. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And what did he do? He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Truth wasn't isolated in a test tube at the university, was it? It was real. It was tangible. You could see it. You could touch it. You could feel it. There's this powerful quote from Acts of the Apostles, 105, paragraph 2. And it says this, Strength to resist evil is best gained by aggressive service aggressive service hallelujah this is another tool that we have so we can be protected from the enemy by being engaged in it 
Now, not like an Ephesian. Remember the Ephesians? They were a busy church doing lots of, lots of very good things. You'd be envious of having uh, to be a membership or being involved with a pastoral community at that church. But they had lost their first love, hadn't they? So we mustn't lose our love, but we must engage in service. In May of 2014, Adventist Compassion Care began as a grassroots effort to minister to the community in a practical way, to go about doing good as Christ did. Now, there were some barriers. And what do you think the biggest barrier was? It wasn't the pastor. It wasn't the volunteers. And it wasn't the money. Well, maybe it was the money. The money in a way that you might not think of. It was fear about shouldering the liability. You see, the conference is very, very anxious to not shoulder the liability. And if you're running a program like this, you're going to have some liability, aren't you? Whether, whether it's related to your medical acts or whether it's related to the volunteers or, you know, slip and fall, all of these things. And so they were really, we, we reached out to them and we said, help us. And they said, mm, no. So that put our little group back into desperately seeking this practical expression. And so we engaged in prayer. And Nora, uh, right here, was not one to accept no. And so she set about a chain of events that ultimately formed a board, filed a fictitious business name, and established 501c3 status. And also, more importantly, located a liability broker. So a synergy has developed between the pastor, the church membership, and the healthcare professionals. And that has resulted in a monthly gratis medical and dental service to those in need, whether they're on the street or in the church or in the neighborhood. So we've ministered to a significant number of, of our fellow church members and, and at first we thought, hmm, is that, you know, the, what, we, what we should be doing? But hallelujah, yes, we should take care of our brothers and sisters, shouldn't we? Those in need, we should desperately take care of them. Absolutely. But perhaps the most important thing it has done is it has given each member of our congregation an opportunity to be involved with the potent transforming power of Christian service from the very young to the very old, from the highly educated to the least educated, from the wealthiest to the poorest. We've been approached by many wanting to know how a similar effort can be established in their church. Well, the process, the paperwork, and the planning, but mostly the liability, can be very daunting. But God leads step by step from glory to glory, doesn't he? 
Every day, in many ways, we stand at the crossroad. And with every new day that dawns, we are challenged with what will we do with the gifts that God has bestowed on us. And at every opportunity and every, ne- and every new undertaking, these crossroads are pivotally important, aren't they? Did you know that being rich makes you a debtor? This is from the volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 22, paragraph 2. According to the truth we have received above others, we are debtors to impart the same to them. Wow. How rich am I? How indebted am I to those who don't have the riches that I haven't earned and that I don't deserve? How rich and indebted are you? How rich and indebted are our congregations, our conferences, our divisions? How rich and indebted are we as a denomination of Seventh-day Adventists? In planning anything, deliberations start at the foot of the cross, don't they? Beholding him face to face. Because revelations of love and truth require drawing near to the one who is love and truth. And in beholding the cross... A focus on self-sacrificing love begins and it starts to ignite a long, dormant tinder. If not hindered or extinguished, it will continue into a full crossfire. And it only takes one fire to start another fire. Conventional wisdom says, fires ultimately will burn out. But there was once a guy who wondered, why does this bush burn and burn and burn? I want to read this from Review and Herald, February 14, 1899, paragraph 10. When the truth is received as truth by the heart, it has passed through the conscience and has captivated the soul with its pure principles. It is placed in the heart by the Holy Spirit, who reveals its beauty to the mind, that its transforming power may be seen in the character. So again, this is a lot, right? This is a lot of stuff going on right here. So here's the quote. And I want you to notice that you see here heart, soul, and mind. God is engaging the whole mechanism, isn't he? There's a trilogy here. He's engaging the whole thing. And the whole thing then is resulting in a transformation of character. And so we find truth that then goes through the conscience, right into the heart, by the Holy Spirit. 
and then the soul is captivated. And then that reveals it back to the mind. So there's a re reinforcement going on here. And then the character is transformed. Did Elijah teach us that even wet wood would burn? Even wet wood can be soggy. You can look at it, you can say, that would never burn. God can make it burn. Remember the guy we just talked about that was walking and stopped to watch a bush burn and burn? Well, he started to have heartburn, didn't he? And he began to know a guy named I am that I am. And step by step, under that leadership, millions of stiff-necked, rebellious slaves were emancipated from the then world power. Does the fire burn out? True enthusiasm is infectious, but it isn't a pansy, passing fancy. It's not for just now. It persists and presses on even when the impossible presents its profile. And Edward Butler hear this quote, one man has enthusiasm for 30 minutes, another for 30 days, but it is the man who has it for 30 years that makes a success of his life. A famous coach stated this, if you aren't fired with enthusiasm, you will be fired with enthusiasm. And does God struggle with an insipid group in the last days? Does he find himself needing an anti-emetic, a medication to make him not nauseated? He does, doesn't he? He so much wants to have his people fired with enthusiasm. So what's the cost of doing nothing? Or what's the cost of not getting it right, but starting? Seth Godin is, can't, is uh, quoted here, the cost of being wrong is less than the cost of doing nothing. You see, our friend Brother Abram packs and leaves Ur. Does he make mistakes? Ah, yes, he does. But he begins, he walks, he progresses. What's the cost of being a minimalist? See, Brother Lot left with his brother Abram, didn't he? But he didn't have the same enthusiasm, did he? He didn't have the fire. What does James say about wood and stubble and being a minimalist and then having your building construction subjected to fire? How many of Lot's family were saved? We must get on fire. Let's look down the road. How does Earth's future look? How does the trajectory of your profession look? At the beginning of this, we talked a little about medicine and where it's headed. And this system 
will fracture and will implode. It's unsustainable from any aspect you want to look at it. Does that cause me anxiety? Yes, it does. This quote here from Review and Herald, June 8, 1897, paragraph 17. All who will gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their defections, and loyalty from their treason will triumph with the third angel's message. Do you find this perplexing? Do you find it promising? It's, pr it's a promise, isn't it? But how do you draw warmth from cold? It's physically impossible, isn't it? I mean, that does, it violates what we know and the way we think. But this is what it says. We get warmer by being near the coldness. And we get courage from cowardice. And we get loyalty from the unloyal. And all this propels one into triumph. Wow. The slide says, as an architect, you design for the present with an awareness of the past for a future which is essentially unknown. Well, do we know our past? Do we know our future? We do, don't we? We've been given a special gift, a whole bunch of truth about what's coming. How will we leverage the present? How will we leverage the past for the future? Planning is essential, but while we would love to eliminate risk, and we would love to plan out every detail, it isn't possible and it's not desirable. See, Martin Luther King Jr. said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. Thoughts become plans, plans become actions, actions become habits, habits determine character, and character decides destiny. Quoting Richard Branson here, I'm not a particularly spiritual man from what I know, but I thought this an important thing to think on. You don't learn to walk by following rules. You learn to walk by doing and falling over. It's true, isn't it? This is how we learn. So step by step, glory to glory, face to face. Has anybody here listened to Dave... Asherick's sermon titled, The Single Secret to Succeeding in the Christian Walk. I would highly recommend that. Go to YouTube and search that and watch it. I mean, is that a little bit of a, a challenging title? It is. It is. But I would encourage you, go and watch that. Go and watch it. Now, as we start to plan and start to move into execution of this plan, we really have to include our community, don't we? 
and we need to know what our community needs. And so having some understanding of that becomes very important because you can, you can build a beautiful system to deliver something, and if nobody wants it, then your system is not very valuable, is it? So foundational elements become very, very important. And many feel that this is dreadfully boring stuff. But it is necessary. Now, I've just, I've just said that you learn to walk by just walking, right, and falling down. But here I'm telling you to plan. So I'm speaking out both sides of my mouth. But there is, you know, when, you, when your plane lines up to take off, where does it line up? right in the middle of the runway, doesn't it? That's so if a little gust of wind comes and you get off to this side, you have some room to correct. So you don't start on one side, do you? You start right in the middle. And there's, there's tension, isn't there, between this and that, right and left. And so we need to build these tensions into our systems. Thinking through foundational elements makes for sound constructions when the storms hit. So, what do these include? Developing a mission statement, bylaws, filing the appropriate paperwork, and most importantly, establishing a board. Now, boards are a funny thing. They're the bane, but they're the necessity, aren't they? Seek for diversity. You don't want a parrot puppet board, do you? See, godly, praying, fervent, deliberate, committed folks will probably disagree on everything except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But these tensions that we're talking about will they'll mold and shape and journey this organization into being the success that it is. See, God is organized. And God is systematic. So be deliberate and measured, but at the same time, be spontaneous and extravagant in a godly way. Diversity will help to foster this apparent oxymoron. And God has a way of assembling special teams, the esprit de corps, that will bring the needed talent, the personality, and the dynamic necessary for the organization. Teams that will enthusiastically work together in the dirtiest and most challenging circumstances. How many here have read Dave Fiedler's book, De Sozo? Hallelujah. Powerful book. Powerful book. As you start to identify talent and assemble your special team, the clergy is essential. We have to, to reassemble what the devil has divided. The ministry and the medical coming together and engaging our entire community so that every member now is participating in action. And if you want to study who I think made some of the most successful programs John Tyndall, T-I-N-D-A-L-L. -L. That man understood it and he did it well. Unfortunately, 
the conference wasn't particularly enthusiastic to support him. And if you want to look at the, one of the most successful things that was done, it was a field school in San Francisco, and they had all the right things going on. And he mentions, Dave Fiedler mentions this in, in his book, De Sozo. So the clergy is important to have on board and engaged. Uh, accountants are necessary, aren't they? Because if you've established a nonprofit, then you have an accountability to the state and to the Fed. But more importantly, you have an accountability to your donors. And you want to avoid even the slightest hint of any improprieties with precious funds. You need lawyers, don't you? They help shepherd around the bureaucratic craze of paperwork. There is some good news. In January of this year, they simplified the 501c3 application, so it is not nearly as onerous now as it once was. You need volunteers. They're the backbone of the operation. They're the boots on the ground. They're at the front line. Notice this guy over here, sleeping in the pew. That guy, when he gets to engage in this kind of activity, he may become your best salesperson. There is something about activity. Now, it may not happen the first time. It may not happen the second time. But persist, persist, persist. And then there are donors, aren't there? Donors that will contribute their money, their time, and their expertise. And they also are the lifeblood of any organization. And you need a building, don't you? And if you can use a building that's already existing, we're using uh, Dr. Elloway's office, and it's been very successful. And you need tools, don't you? Again, if you can avoid duplication here, it really helps with the efficiency. And then mentors are an incredibly important asset. And of course, our best mentor is our elder brother who knows all of our afflictions. Oh, but now we're back to this, aren't we? Pesky liability. So this is probably the biggest impediment to starting organizations. And we could have spent the majority of our time talking about this, but needless to say, it can be arranged and managed. And I would love, I would love to discuss with our conference, with our division, with anybody at our church level that would see fit to change the construction of their position on risk management and liability and say, hallelujah, you want to do medical ministry? We will facilitate you. We will we'll shoulder this burden of risk. We will assume the liability. We, we will work in concert with you. And we will not make you jump through these hurdles. So I want to trumpet that message. And I want to give them the opportunity because they have talents. And they have opportunities. And they can assist us a great deal. Because churches are looking to us, Adventist Compassion Care, and they're wanting to come in under our 501c3 and under our liability. And it's starting to, to be how... Do we manage all of this going on? We're just a little group of people from Red Bluff, you know? We'll see how God works this out.
So here's the gory details, and I apologize because this is a busy slide with lots of little, little uh, writing on it. But the week before, in church, we remind our members that they have an opportunity to participate in Christian service. And then the young adults will go from door to door. They'll go through the park. They will go to wherever they think there is need, and they will provide people with the knowledge and information to come and access us. And we want to keep it small. We want to keep it sort of low-key. We Then on the morning of, on Sundays, we've done it both in the morning and in the afternoon, but we'll meet with all the volunteers, and we will have a worship, we'll have prayer, and then the people come in and we register them. We collect, collect a little bit of demographics, and we I try and identify what their needs are. They then are ushered into an area where they have access to literature, smiling volunteers that will meet and greet, and then we can also start some exploration here about what their expectations are, what their needs are. So this discussion has started here. Now we haven't implemented this yet. The Young Discipleship Sabbath School is working on this so that there's eight health laws that are going to be then managed by them. So we're incorporating more people in our church, and I find this very exciting. Once we've brought these people in, then we one by one bring them before a doctor and a nurse. We collect some vitals, and now we ask questions, provide resources, and we affirm and encourage change. Then they go through dental triage, where, again, their specific dental needs are identified, and we set expectations. We're not doing complex stuff. We're keeping it simple, things that can be done in one setting. Then we take them from our church to Dr. Elloway's office. And then from there, we have our early teen register them. And then here we have con concierge again, so that they have access to literature. We have smiling engagement, even massages if we have that available at that, at that time. And then we have volunteers that have made food, a vegan meal for these people. And then they get the, the advantage of seeing that this food doesn't have to be just raw cabbage, which is what everyone thinks. Have a head of broccoli. There you go. Right? I mean, you can make good food, right, that is vegan. So we're trying to break some myths here. Then dental treatment is carried out, and we make an emphasis, as you heard from the speaker before, on praying with these people. Prayer is so important. Then if there are medical needs, we have them meet with a physician and a nurse again. Minimal pharmaceuticals here, maximal education. All right, medications ultimately are a band-aid to get us so that we can be free of those medications. Then they meet with chaplaincy, and we identify their spiritual needs, and we identify non-medical needs, and we do what we can to meet those needs in a very practical way. We help them to be aware of what resources are available, either through our church or through our community. We provide them more literature, and we commit 
to continuity with them. We give them a gift bag, some of the things that uh, you see there, and then some of the, the sweet elders in our, in our church have hand-knit things for these people. And some of them don't have homes. And some of them have cold nights, so they're very appreciative of these things. We try to connect them with whatever support groups they need, and then they are bathed in prayer again. Then they're transported back, and they're debriefed and reinforced here. And then here's one of the most important things, vehicles for continuity, these four things. So this is what we call the ACC Sabbath School, the Adventist Compassion Care Sabbath School. We invite every single person, and that's one of the folders that you, or the flyer that you have there, to come to our church from 9.30 to 10.30 on Sabbath to meet in small groups with doctors and dentists who can then help shepherd them through change, be a resource for them, answer questions, provide some direction. We also are doing, we typically will do two things a year. Currently we're doing a Life at its Best series where it's like dinner with a doctor. So that then they can come and they can interact again with a little bit, a larger group, but they also get a vegan meal. And so again, they're given the opportunity to see this stuff is practical and, and easily incorporated into every day. We invite them to our fellowship meals that, are, that follow our services on Sabbath. And then we also have an Adventist community services where clothing, showers, um, food can be obtained. So those are, those are all the things that we're trying to facilitate. All right, now, this thought. And if you, if you want to, to explore this further, because I'm not going to do the great job, A.T. Jones, 1895, General Conference, Faith... Righteousness by Faith, Sermon number 20. He makes this point. If you and I look upon the sun for even a short time, we'll get a retinal burn, right? So we can't look at the sun and behold its glory. But if you take a prism, then that powerful, glorious white light is refracted. And now beautiful colors are cast about that we can look at at length and not injure the sensitive retina. Now God is much more brilliant than the sun. A glance by mere mortals would consume us. But he wants us to see his glory and he wants others to see his glory. Therefore, from the foundation of the world, a plan was constructed that Jesus Christ would take on sinful nature and place himself between the Father and us. And in refracting the glorious brilliance of the Father, the refracted light now falls where we can behold it and study the splendor. Jesus becomes the prism and refracts the glorious light of the Father. This refracted light then is cast on any reflective surface. Now the question is, will you let yourself stand there, open to the refracted and reflected rays of the glory of God as they shine through the blessed prism of the Lord Jesus Christ?
Will you let those refracted and now reflected rays fall on you so that men looking at you will see the reflected glory of God through the Lord Jesus? Now I have a question. Can mud reflect these glorious colors? There's often a discouraged question. How can such a person as I am reflect the glory of God? See, the virtue is not in the mud that makes the rainbow shine. It merely reflects the light cast there by the sun who is reflecting the glorious brilliance of the Father. It is our art to furnish a place for the glory to fall that we may shine in the beautiful reflected rays of the glory of God. The virtue is not in you. It is in the glory. This is what it is to glorify God. Shall we choose to be? You see, the one who chooses to be reflects and thus glorifies God. God wants such beings as this eternally in his universe. Or shall we choose not to be and glorify ourselves here for a little season? In John 12, 27, we read the Savior pondering the cost of Gethsemane. And this is what he says. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose... I have come to this hour. What is the purpose of man? What is our purpose? Is this our hour? If not, should we begin planning, constructing, refining for that hour? Now, in verse 28, we read, Father, glorify thy name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That word is for you and me in every trial. Because we read in John 17, 22, the glory that thou gavest me, I have given them. He will see that his glory is reflected on us, through us, that men shall know that God still manifests himself in the flesh. Ah, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Luke 10, verse 2. Together, we can save a life. Ephesians 5, 13 says this, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall shine on you. And in Isaiah 60, it says, Arise, shine, 
for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. And your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nations shall come to you. Hallelujah. The earth will be covered with darkness. You and you and you will be light. Light reflected by Jesus Christ who is refracting the glorious brilliance of the Father. Are there questions? Yeah, how, how often did it just... Uh, that, uh, the diagram of all of our, basically. we're doing that once a month. You, you do this program once a month, and you do it at the church. That's correct. So, yeah, so we're doing it once a month. We start at the church. We go to the professional office of Dr. Elloway to do all the dental treatment and to do some of the medical treatment. But um, because most of the medical is just consultation and education, we, we have a lot of latitude that, in that regard. And how many would you see in a typical day? We're seeing anywhere from 15 to 20. And, uh, well, it, you know, it ends up being a long day. Here's the, by the time you get your worship in, your registration done, you get your people in. And, and so uh, typically uh, if we start at, um, well, we were starting at 9, initially with, with actually seeing patients, but starting at 8, 8.30 for worship, then we would finish by 6. Well, then we, we, we wanted to see if we could get more participation by doing it later. So now we've been starting at 2 with worship, but then that means that um, often we're not getting done, especially because we have a board meeting at the end of the day. So that turns into 10 o'clock really, really quickly. So, um, do you have these people that just show up, or do they schedule? We, they are just showing up, and and we want to keep it informal enough that we don't have to make a bunch of phone calls. And so, those that are there, uh, we will do our best to, to treat them. There there have been times where we've had more than we can we can treat, and sometimes we'll do a partial. We'll say we'll we'll clean your teeth today and then come back next month and we will do more work. So that's another opportunity that we can have to establish continuity. Let me make sure I understand. Uh, you are a dentist. I thought you were, uh, you must be an orthodontist. Uh, uh, no, I am an orthopedic surgeon. So I, I'm on the medical side of this, but I, you know, I observe and I certainly talk to my colleagues on the dental side as well. Yeah. What type of medical record do you The very good question because in the, in the era of HIPAA and every, all of this, 
Um, because we are primarily doing education on the, on the medical side, we are not keeping much in the way of any real records. There's a whole lot of difficulties as soon as you start to keep much in the way of records. Like how do you store them? How do you secure them? How do you um, now make them available to the primary care provider? And, and, and so, oh man, you know. So by keeping it primarily to education, then we don't have to enter into so much of this documentation like you would normally be required. I appreciate that very much, but then I saw on the slides that you said minimal um, pharmaceutical or minimal medication. Correct. You, you would, if you change anything about medicines, do you not have a record? So we want to, the question is, um, if we change medications, how do we provide the appropriate documentation and how do we um, facilitate that? We want to work in concert with their primary care providers. We don't want to usurp any of that responsibility. Um, and we don't want our colleagues to think that we're um, then, you know, creating any kind of division or... So what we have done, in those situations where there's changes that need to be made, then we have worked to coordinate that with their primary care provider. Now, we are very fortunate because we have a mid-level who is, is very involved with um, um, psychiatric care, and we have a psychiatrist and they work together. And so then that means that then those that need psychiatric medications can be in, incorporated into a, an existing practice that then all the record keeping and, and things can happen at that facility. So uh, again, the be, simple is better here. And so we're doing what we can to keep things very, very simple. And ultimately, when we get down to the nitty gritty and when this world's covered in darkness, it's simple remedies, isn't it? Hallelujah. It's charcoal. It's hot packs, right? And it's prayer. So, uh, it, and I, I can see how the devil has tried to construct things so that it would be so impossible to deliver medical care that then people will shy away from it. But as the systems precess into destruction, then we'll have an opportunity, but it will be by simple methods. Uh, how do you screen so that if they have insurance and finances, they don't, they don't treat them, or do you not? If they come, they come. You know, God has been very good about bringing to us, the question, I want to restate the question, um, how do we screen for people that have adequate resources that are then trying to catch a ride on a, on a freebie? Well, God brings us the people that need us. It's amazing. And in the, in the, there's been a couple of patients who were more than able to uh, economically cover their cost elsewhere. These people were so appreciative that one made a large donation and the other wanted some additional work done. And so he swapped putting a solar system in for the work that he got. So, I mean, God, has, God arranges this stuff. Hey. Yeah, we have not made it a priority. And, and because, again, we want to keep this sort of low key and we don't want a, a whole lot of hype. We're not putting it in the newspaper. We're not. Now, we do want, we do want to make the, the, the Sabbath school, the Adventist Compassion Care Sabbath school available. So we want to promote this because in connecting our community with this, then 
you know, we're not having to do the, the record keeping. We're not having to do the, um, the troubles of connecting with their primary care and, and things. So this, this gives us an opportunity in an informal setting where we can do a lot of discussion. And um, I, it's, been, it's a growing thing. It's very blessed. <laughs> I, for, for me, I was just trying to think, I need documentation. I won't remember if I prayed with the patient. Uh, I won't remember that their husband has died. Well, but my point is, uh, they're expecting me to remember that I paid for their grandmother who is dying of cancer. And if I don't have that documented, I'm gone. Now, my system of documentation, I can put it where it doesn't go into the record, but it's there right staring me in the face with a, so that I know and they think I remember. Yeah. If I meet them on the street, I'm in trouble. Which means that if this was a monthly thing and they come six months later, I'd never remember. So. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't remember the next month or the next day. So that, that would be a problem. Yeah. So the, the, the comment is, is that if there's inadequate record keeping, there's trouble with keeping the continuity. And, and I guess what I would say is we haven't had the continuity that you would have in a patient-physician relationship. It has been more episodic. Because ultimately what we want to do is we want to move people from having sort of a, I come to you, you write a prescription for pills, I go away, to now I come to you, you give me some good ideas, you point me to some internet resources, I go, I exercise all of those resources, and then I may not need you again for a while or until I have another question or maybe I find this your Sabbath school so interesting I come just to hear uh, about what's being discussed and so those are that's what we're seeing more than um, come back and see me in six weeks or come back and see me you know um, again and we'll work on another thing so we haven't had that kind of continuity now on the dental side we are keeping records because they have the physical office there, they have their dental records already, and it's uh, a much less onerous in terms of, of the record keeping. Do you involve non-church members, especially as dental providers or, or accountants, attorneys? Um, are they involved in the program? So the question is, is have we evolved non-Seventh-day Adventists in our activities? And we have. And it hasn't been a, a prominent thing, but as a group, we feel that we would welcome anybody who has the, the spirit of Christian service and that perhaps by working with us, they will be interested enough to see what, a, what is it that those crazy Adventists are up to. Yeah. Do you have a sense of the, the clients or individuals who come that they have a PCP? The majority of people that you were saying direct them back to a PCP, I was just... Yeah. So the question is, is, is do, we, do we have a sense that people are connected are with a primary care provider or do they have access to care on a consistent basis? And um, I would say that we've got both. We've got both because we service a significant number of homeless. And, and their access is the emergency room. Exactly. So, 
Um, we, you know, I mean, they're they're. So you can't really yeah, and we're in those situations. We're certainly not going to provide a prescription. You know, um, we we have had you know crises during our clinics, and they've been primarily psychiatric. Severe depression, you know, and and so we have worked to facilitate in those settings people to access the appropriate care in an acute and stable environment, and then we have transitioned them to the outpatient setting. So that, I mean that's uh, you know an excellent point. I mean it, it are, it's chaos. It really is chaos. The medical system is turning into chaos, and this Obamacare did not help. You're in the sort of delicate situation because the uh, local physicians uh, on 30 days out of the 31 days refer to you. So if they in any way, I mean if you tell some of these patients things that the lo their local physician would disagree with, uh, they might be unhappy with you because you're out, I mean after all you're an orthopedist, what do you know about uh, nutrition and hypertension and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Have, has that happened at all, or do they see you just trying to help some poor people? So the question is, is has there been any resentment by our, our colleagues who are practicing in the community? And the good news is no, there hasn't been. And that, that our colleagues have been sensitive to the idea that lifestyle does matter. And none of them have, have poo-pooed it to the point where um, they have been in conflict with us as they talk about patients. So that's, that's, the, that's the good news. Um, and there's this growing awareness, isn't there? I, I attended the, uh, the uh, plant-based uh, nutrition conference in Anaheim that was three weeks ago, four, week, four weeks ago or so. Yeah, the Plantrition Project. And um, I mean, like I said, the temperance movement in the, in the late 1800s is moving forward, isn't it? And, and this idea of being a vegan is really sort of catching hold and gaining traction. And uh, God is pouring out his Holy Spirit. He wants people to have a mind that can be prepared to have the discernment so that when truth and love present itself, to a person that they can engage it and start this journey. And it's profoundly exciting to me that we see this happening. So our medical community is, has been willing to consider these things and it's, it, it continues to gain traction. Well, we appreciate this very much. Our, uh, our time is out, but uh, we can ask questions to him. Uh, um, but otherwise, well, let's just have a word of prayer and dismissal. Amen. Dear Lord, thank you for giving us the example of Jesus who, uh, whose whole life was devoted to medical ministry and helping us and whose influence is alive till, still today. Teach us better ways to see what he was like so we can be like him. And uh, develop simple methods and approach that can relieve distress and bless our community.
medical missionary work. In Christ's name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.